We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Canada's inflation rate falling back for the first time in more than two years uh, within the country's target range. Economists still weary whether the fight is over yet. Uh, it's funny, you see media outlets using the word tumbled. The inflation rate tumbled uh, from 3.4 to 2.8. That's like, what, a half a point? point I'm not sure that's a tumble. I think the one when it went from 8 to 5 was probably more of a tumble. But it's interesting the language that we use. But it is in that sweet spot. And we talked to Eric Cam, professor of economics with Toronto Metro Metropolitan University about this before, and it's like, why have a, a, a decrease when we are sort of in the sweet spot, even at 3.4%, and, and now here we are at 28 To get his expert opinion, Eric Cam is with us now, economic professor, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, how are you today? Scott, always nice to speak to a radio legend. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'll put you back on hold and see if I can get Roy Green. No, 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 you'll do. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on this? We talked about this. You know, why even have a rate increase if you're sort of like within a percentage point of this sweet spot? And now here we are in the in the stats from June say that we are. What are your thoughts? Where's your head? You know what? You bring up REM from about 30 years ago. So let's go 35 when boy George said, I'll tumble for you. <laughs> um I can't tell you that I'm thrilled. I mean, because I've been the person that's come on the station all over chorus and said that this has been too much too fast. So I'm not going to sit here and celebrate that we finally got into some magic range. I mean, I know that the Bank of Canada wants to get the number to two, and that's wonderful. I mean, they feel like that's their mission in life. And well, I guess it is, given that for about 20, 22 years, we had a 2% inflation rate and the economy chugged along quite well. So I see why they want to get it there. But I still say the same thing I said last week, that we are going to do this on the backs of the labor market and on the backs of homeowners. And I don't understand the speed. And I also, you already brought this up and it was a very good point. Let's not try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. They can say that the price level, the year-to-year overall price level, that aggregate basket of goods that I'd actually like to see, is coming down in terms of the price. But remember, what are people really buying here? And so if you're looking at gasoline prices, they're still going up. If you're looking at food prices, they're still 9.1% above where they were a year ago, restaurant 66 And mortgage rates, well, they've only gone from 0.25 as a prime to five in warp speed, 10 consecutive increases. So I can't jump up and down and celebrate because I don't work at a bank. I don't work at an investment company and I don't work for the government. I like to think of myself working for the person who wants to put food on the table and a roof over their family's head. And that person has no reason to celebrate today. There's nothing they've learned today that should make them take a a sigh or a a deep breath and say, well, that's over. Because I got to tell you, Scott, far from over. Well, exactly. And you know, I was referring to somebody on social media early today. Well, if it's all over, I'm buying an I'm buying a house and groceries. I mean, that's just not the case. Uh, we, as you said, this might be a symbolic uh, figure and such, but it still doesn't stop the pain that families are going through on a day to day basis. No, not even close. And, you know, I think that it's the speed of adjustment that's got everybody so upset 
and they should be. The speed of adjustment during the pandemic was disastrous in terms of monetary stimulus. The speed at which the supply chain got shut down was disastrous. And now I could argue, and I do, that the speed of adjustment to try to bring down the price level has really had such a cost, and and to me, a cost bigger than the benefit. Now, one day we will, we will rejoice again in an inflation rate that's somewhere between two and 3%, and we'll get back to where we were in in the relatively good old days. But unfortunately, before we hit those good old days, we're gonna hit bad old days, and we're gonna have interest rates that are still going to go up. And I would argue they're gonna go up at least one more time this year. And as I was quick to point out on Roy's show, I'm glad you were listening, 18%, Scott, only 18% of mortgages in this country have been renegotiated since the rise in the prime rate. So mm-hmm. that means that four out of five households in Canada are still going to hit the renegotiation table. And they probably had mortgages in and around 2%. They're going to have mortgages in around 8 to 9%. And are you going to say now, Eric, is the bottom going to fall out of the housing market? I honestly think it is. I honestly think the bottom is going to fall out of the housing market. And the curiosity for me is just when and how bad. So, no, I can't celebrate. This is not wonderful news. This is the Bank of Canada doing what the Bank of Canada knows how to do. I mean, this is this is first year macroeconomics. If you raise rates, if you inflation is going to fall because people are going to have money taken out of their wallet. So all that happened here is the economy functioned as an economy is supposed to. But I will say to my dying breath, it was too fast. And we are going to see the cost coming out directly in both the labor market and the housing market. Do you think this tip we're seeing today is temporary? Is this a blip? No, I don't think it's a blip. I don't think it's a blip at all. I I, I think it's a well-functioning capitalist economy. You've taken money out of people's hands and put it into the banks. So people have less money to spend and down comes the inflation rate. And it's going to come down some more because we the Bank of Canada is out of the closet on this issue. They want it to be 2%. So, no, I don't think it's a blip. I think things are moving in the direction that the Bank of Canada wants them to move in. Now, again, it's the speed. Are they going to raise rates again in September? and keep this speed and this and this pace up? I argue, yes, I think they will raise rates one more time before this year is over. Mm. And I just feel horrible for people that have to renegotiate mortgages in 2024. All right, uh, unrelated, Jugmeet Singh gonna be on the show later on today uh, talking about his rental housing plan. What is the best way to provide rental and affordable housing? How's, what's the best way to get this started? You know the truth, I'm not an expert in housing. I know that we need more of it. A lot of these problems aren't gonna go away until we figure out how to increase the housing supply. And I am gonna say this, and I know this might put me in a little bit of Twitter hot water, but Jagmeet Singh can say whatever he wants because he's never gonna be the prime minister. So it's very easy to jump up and down on hardworking people that have mortgages and rents that they have to pay and say, I have the magic bullet. Well, let me tell you something, Hamilton, he doesn't. Eric Camp, Professor, Macroeconomics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Inflation rate is down to 2.8%. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's an honor, Scott. Nike's decision to permanently end its sponsorship with Hockey Canada's men's program in the wake of several sexual assault scandals within the organization is a necessary part of the rebuilding process, says a Brock University expert. Might remember we were talking about this uh, uh, yesterday on uh, how after the, many companies had put a pause and now Nike deciding to end this personally. Uh, and the professor says the relationship between sponsors and sports organizations is incredibly fragile. 
to talk more about all of this, Taylor McKee is with us, Assistant Professor, Sports Management, Brock University, and here now. Taylor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks so much for having me. So why is this a necessary part of the rebuilding process? Well, I think as you as you uh, quite rightly framed there, this this process of sponsors losing favor with Hockey Canada and vice versa has sort of been now about 24 months of this going on. Nike's situation is is rather different, though. Nike's not only a, a sponsor and a partner of Hockey Canada, but they also have a share of culpability in the 2018 alleged sexual assault scandal. So in this particular situation, and this is uh, alluding to a report filed by the Globe and Mail, that a senior official from Nike Canada was uh, was buying drinks for, for players shortly before the alleged sexual assault. So clearly this is not just simply a relationship between sponsor and and Han sports organization, but hmm. they are actually a bit of intertwined in terms of the way that this scandal has played out. So is this about Nike just distancing itself from the whole problem rather than the organization? Perhaps. I mean, it could be. I mean, again, we, we found out yesterday from Rick Westhead that they've actually known for about four months, Hockey Canada, that this was going to be the way things were, were going to play out, and that perhaps a sponsor is already lined up to replace Hockey Canada from a dollar figure. But really, I mean, this situation uh, ending could be beneficial for both sides. I mean, certainly uh, the, the relationship between a sponsor and a sports organization is a two-way street where certainly the conduct of the sports organization is important to, to determine whether or not the corporation is going to actually you know, sponsor the, the organization, put forward the money. But the other way is also true, where the conduct of the corporation is also important with whether or not the sports organization can actually accept this money. And Nike is has not exactly comported themselves very well. And even more recently, I mean, they're under investigation by the Canadian Ombudsman for the use of possible uh, sweatshop labor. It's not certainly not sweatshop labor. That's something that's well-established. Uh, Uyghur slave labor is essentially, essentially the accusation as levied by an Australian research firm. So, Certainly at this point in time, this looks like a situation in which, at least from a PR perspective, it might be good to, to distance themselves from each other. Uh, but still involved in hockey with other partnerships, other uh, organizations and such. Why not just break free from all of it? Why not for on, on the part of Nike Canada? I mean, Correct, yeah. It, yeah, this is something that, again, Nike actually has been scaling back their hockey operations for for a few years now, certainly almost a decade, going back to when they used to make their own manufactured equipment, and then they started a partnership with Nike Bauer. Nike's been moving back on a lot of businesses that is, does, doesn't represent their core business, which is, of course, sneakers and, and basketball and things like that. So it's not a huge surprise that they would be trying to maybe scale back on their hockey operations more broadly. And as you know, they're not a, a main jersey sponsor anymore of any of the major NHL teams or even international competitions. This is this is part of a, a, a certainly maybe a strategic decision on the part of Nike, but certainly and knowing the fact that the suspensions and the f- final uh, adjudication of the 2018 uh, sexual assault scandal is coming due any moment now, perhaps this is a preemptive move to separate themselves from this specific venture in Hockey Canada. And, you know, if the rumored uh, replacement is Fanatics, I think they'll probably be able to account dollar for dollar, though right now Nike leaving is a, a huge financial hit, obviously, for Hockey Canada uh, from a budgetary perspective. But in terms of building a new culture, but in terms of turning a new leaf, this is certainly, I think, a necessary part given Nike's implication in the scandal itself. How will other partners view this decision? That's a great question. I mean, I think over the past year, we've seen that the, these partners are, are certainly still willing to partner with Hockey Canada, provided that Hockey Canada makes their partnerships more uh, less deleterious for the actual organizations themselves uh, when they when they pony up the money. So certainly we are looking at a situation in which 
I don't think Nike Canada is going to start a domino effect because that's already really happened. And again, it's important to consider that Nike's situation is different from, say, TELUS and Tim Hortons and Canadian Tires and the other organizations that we've mm. seen reevaluate their positions. But with the introduction of a new board and then another new board on top of that, a new president, we could be seeing now perhaps this is a, a move in the right direction for Hockey Canada. But again, time will tell. Certainly we are still in the early stages, but this was true last summer when the interim board was brought in. But I think that is this going to be another run on sponsors for Hockey Canada? I don't think so. I think that other organizations are in a different position, and this Nike situation is quite unique. Um, that's uh, sort of what my next question was. Um, obviously, a different situation for other partners and such. But is this another? Or is this does this provide other opportunities for other sports uh, companies, like an Under Armour or whatever? So where one falls, another one rises up. Certainly, I think it would be foolish to to sort of. Uh, downplay the the effects of losing a major sponsor like Nike. I mean, certainly from a financial point of view, absolutely. Also, Nike has a lot more cachet than the, some of the other brands, including some of the ones you just mentioned, including the rumored replacement, which is Fanatics. And a lot of sports fans have very distinct opinions about Fanatics from a, from a consumer point of view, and they do not carry the, the sort of market... Uh, the market clout that Nike does. So certainly it is another main opportunity. I mean, you'd love to see some sort of Canadian solution to this. None uh, leap to mind, frankly, and certainly not for the dollar amount that Hockey Canada would be looking to be make up for in terms of a budgetary shortfall. I think that it's going to change the way that we view that, that sweater, certainly that sweater for the, for the women's national team, the men's national team, for the junior teams, the developmental teams, everything. I mean, the, the entire look of that is going to look a little different, and perhaps there's an opportunity for them to sort of perhaps try and fully rebrand themselves Something that we've heard rumored in the past uh, 18 months or so. Maybe Roots is going to start making helmets. You never know. Uh, Hockey Canada image still tarnished here? Uh, first of all, I would love that. <laughs> Roots, I'd love to go to the, back to the 98 look and Nagano. That would be awesome. Yeah, really. In terms, <laughs> in terms of Hockey Canada's, uh, the way that they, that they appear to the Canadian public, the trust-building exercise is still in its early stages. I mean, they talk about this with, with public trust. I mean, it takes decades to build, and it takes one bad week, one bad day to lose it. Yeah. So they are far from, from back where they were. And, again, if given the details of this sort of Nike situation with 2018, it was very uncomfortable seeing that swoosh right next to the Hockey Canada logo uh, every time you see the jersey itself. So this is a part of the sort of uncoupling process that has to take place. But, I mean, Hockey Canada's is public image is maybe – Five percent where it was from last summer, but it was still a long way from where it was maybe a decade ago. This is this, as you said, uh, years to, to to make the reputation, to build the reputation, not long to take it down. This is going to be a very long lesson to learn, isn't it? Absolutely, and and it's going to be a painful one too. I mean, it's it's important that us as Canadian sport, sports fans that we recognize the fact that you know it's okay to have high standards for Hockey Canada. I mean, this isn't kicking uh, an organization that's down and that's luckier. We should demand more from this organization. Yeah. And as we're yeah. Canadian sports fans, it's okay to say we want better from someone who's the custodian of something that means so much to so many of us. What about the women's game? How do they react to all of this? Is there any benefit to them in any way? I don't think that they're necessarily distinct in, in this situation. I think that this issue affects you know the, the national teams broadly, uh, regardless of if it's the men's or the women's team. I think that there's probably going to be fewer uncomfortable questions asked of players, which is, again, something that happens to women's players so so disproportionately is that they get microphones in front of their faces asked about you know these various scandals as if they are some sort of a representative for, for all women in, in general. I think that hopefully this is, again, just trying to minimize those types of distractions moving forward. Um, I think the women's team is probably just eager to make sure that their their funding is, is adequately provided and they are you know, provided for as, as if they are 
uh, first-class athletes, and I think that's the most important thing. And if that's going to be Nike or Adidas or Fanatics or, or Roots, as you mentioned, I mean, <laughs> so be it. But I think that for the women's team, it's the, the concerns are more about, you know, are we being respected and, and cared for? Taylor McKee with us, Assistant Professor of Sports Management, Brock University, Nike's decision to end its sponsorship with Hockey Canada and the fallout from it. Taylor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Burlington preparing for its 150th anniversary celebrations. Heritage Week coming to Burlington uh, first, second week of August, just after the August long weekends. To talk more about all of this, Marsha Paley is with us, chair of Heritage Week subcommittee and here now. Uh, Marsha, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Thank you and good afternoon. So what happened in Burlington 150 years ago? Well, 150 years ago, Burlington uh, became the village uh, after the merging of Wellington Square and Port Nelson. Um, And so in 2023, we're celebrating Burlington 150. And uh, next year, we'll actually be celebrating its 110th as a town and 50 years as a city. But today, it's our 60th centennial. Wow, that's pretty cool. So you got lots uh, in the planning for celebrations for the next couple of years, that's for sure. All right, so this isn't coming up till the first week in August. What does it involve? What, what sort of events are going to go on? Thanks, Scott. We've got uh, 16 separate events in seven days. It's an excellent slate of activities that have been put together by over 30 organizations and departments at the city. Um, and uh, individuals who have contributed. So it is uh, an excellent uh, slate for any resident or visitors. I think we'd like to say we have something for everyone. So this involves going and visiting the certain uh, community uh, 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 institutions and stuff. Give us a little idea of the actual events that are happening. Excellent. So... We're starting off the events on Saturday, August the 5th. We have an opening ceremony where the mayor, deputy mayor, uh, indigenous spiritual healer, town crier, and uh, it's all going to be held at the 1834 St. Luke's Anglican Church. We're going to be recognizing a number of uh, businesses and individuals who have been in Burlington for uh, over 50 years and one of our farmers who has been in Burlington for 200 years. Uh, then we're going to offer a area walk of Spencer Smith Park uh, by the Burlington Heritage or Historical Society. And then uh, for those uh, wanting to celebrate Emancipation Day, we're going to be offering a Halton Freedom Celebration Festival at Spencer Smith Park. And to share in the joy with the Halton Black History Awareness Society, as Burlington's the first city in the world to claim August as Emancipation Month. Sunday, for those who uh, can reminisce about Sunday drives with their family, Heritage Burlington is sharing its first self-guided driving tour of Burlington, and uh, this will offer unique landscapes with a variety of cultural and natural heritage for those who uh, want to see more than uh, just the urban area of Burlington. So on Monday, August the 7th, we have Stitching in History Quilt Exhibit, and the Halton Quilters Guild has put on a wonderful exhibit at uh, the church at St. Luke's, at, or the church hall at St. Luke's, and it's going to be offering uh, some quilt challenges and an opportunity for uh, 
participants or attendees to see how a quilt is actually made. Then we're going to have another uh, walking tour of the beach park front, uh, waterfront, again by the Historical Society, and it will actually end at the Beach Canal Lighthouse. So you can see what's going on at the lighthouse and the Keeper's Cottage on the Hamilton side. Um, And then on Tuesday, August 8th, we have a screening at the Joseph Brandt Museum, and it's on our centennial film that was done back in 1973 called The Eyes of Memory. Hmm. Um, So that will provide uh, an opportunity for uh, those to see some who may not be here anymore and to see some of the changes uh, since uh, 1973. Then, if you want, you can get to a symphony in the shell, and we've got the Burlington Symphony Orchestra, who's celebrating their 50th anniversary, and they're going to put on an hours of a fantastic performance in our 60-year-old landmark band shell in Burlington. Wednesday, we have uh, the Burlington Heights Walk by the Royal Botanical Gardens, and on August the 10th, on Thursday, we have uh, Before Burlington. And it's a presentation by Darren of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation about the treaties around us. And then on Thursday, August the 10th, we have So You Think You Know Burlington Trivia Night. Um, Again, the uh, Burlington Historical Society and History Picks is uh, putting together a fun evening of trivia. Um, And it's going to be held at the Performing uh, Arts Centre. So we have room for over 160 to... uh, have some fun, um, possibly get shocked, and definitely to laugh as they um, aim to become first and second in the trivia contest. Um, Do you think the residents... Oh, go ahead. Okay, keep going, keep going quick. I've got a few few more. I'll quickly get through, Scott. Uh, Friday, August the 11th, we have a heritage fair at the Burlington Library, so you can come out and see a number of the organizations that contribute to protecting the heritage. Uh, we have farming through the years. We've got three of the uh, farming families that have been uh, in Burlington for over 150 years. They're going to put on a presentation. And then uh, Saturday, we wrap it all up with a North Burlington Cemetery tour. Doors open, um, in which we have over seven sites that residents and visitors can visit. And then uh, we have the Weight of Clay tour at the Art Gallery of Burlington, who will be celebrating their 40th anniversary of the ceramics collection beautiful do you think the residents that live in our cities now are aware of the history at this end of the lake i mean it's a a tremendous amount of history here you're absolutely right there is a tremendous amount of history and uh and and heritage that runs from uh, agriculture to uh, architecture to natural built um social and i think that's what we're bringing out uh at this uh event this week and i'd like to invite all residents and visitors uh from throughout uh, southwestern ontario central ontario to come out uh, check out our website and uh, register for any events that need registration all right marcia paley with us chair of heritage week subcommittee burlington uh, getting ready to celebrate their 150th anniversary heritage week coming up uh, starting at about august 5th and all the details on the website marcia thanks for the time good luck thanks god i really appreciate this opportunity to share this with your listeners when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk 900 CHML.
The war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or as Russia called it, a minor operation, has reached its five over its 500th day. Uh, some remember back in the day when this all started and Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, Russia said this was going to be a three, four, five day operation. Now we're over the 500th day. Some express worry that the West is losing interest or succumbing to war fatigue, watching this grueling uh, invasion just grind on. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Are we in that phase now where people are just uh, getting exhausted with this? And, and it, you know, we'll, we've seen it. We know what it is. Is this still as of interest as it was way back when, when this all started? Probably not. The audience for all kinds of news is uh, seems to be drying up a little bit. Partly it's the shorter attention span that I think is caused by the digital culture. Hmm. Uh, we want more hits per moment. Uh, and the war in Ukraine is gone on for a longer period of time than what we may be used to. So, yeah, I think people are saying, uh, can't they sort this out? Uh, what's going on here? Um, and I think that one of the issues, certainly in Canada, is the fact that uh, we don't have any troops over there. So that has kind of taken away some of the uh, emotional content of this story for Canadians. Um, and Canada has uh, is basically uh, been blamed for not being more supportive financially of NATO, uh, even though the prime minister has promised to send another few hundred troops over to Latvia. Uh, that's not quite the same thing. So I think that there's a sense uh, in the public of, first of all, there's a lot of news fatigue going on right now. And uh, secondly, uh, aside from the fact that certainly out West, where there is a larger percentage of Ukrainian Canadians, and so there's much more interest in this story there, there seems to be a little less of it down here in the, in the media center of Canada, southern Ontario. I remember at the beginning of this, like in the first week, the prime minister and a whole crew of ministers went over there and many were asking, like, what are you doing? Why are you going there? What are you why are you taking all these ministers with you uh, into this region? And I believe it was the first week or so of this of this invasion. We don't seem to see that now. Well, I think. <laughs> It's hard for me to read the mind of the prime minister, uh, but my sense is, is that this is not a story that allows for the usual uh, federal liberal narrative of victimhood. Um, and I don't mean to be dismissive of the issues that the government thinks uh, are important, but it's clear that this is a, a tougher sell uh, electorally. Uh, than dealing with issues around the environment or refugees, although there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees here in Toronto and they're sleeping on the street. So this yeah. may this may push some of the interest in the story back onto the front pages again. Uh, does it reveal our shortcomings mili merit, uh, militarily uh, and focuses on things like NATO spending, which obviously hasn't been our, um, you know, at, at the forefront of our uh, forefront of mind lately? 
That's right. And I think that what we're seeing now is a general, I hate to say it, uh, there's a kind of news fatigue that's going on right now. Um, and this is something that a lot of media organizations are starting to acknowledge. There was just a story that moved out of the United States about how the audiences for both public radio and commercial radio have gone into decline for the first time ever. Um, and so this is very worrisome, especially for uh, the big media companies. And I think we're seeing some of that here in, in Canada, not so much in radio, but certainly in, uh, in, te in television, because as we all know, uh, people want to watch streaming video uh, and less about programmed uh, content. Um, so this is a this is one of the reasons maybe it's an indirect reason why so many um canadians seem to be moving away from following important news stories because the news is bad it's really i was just good. about to, i was just about to say that jeff considering where we are the pandemic and now affordability uh there ain't a lot of good news out there that's right and i think one of the reasons why People and in the post-COVID environment that we're in, um, I think people are looking for a little bit of relief uh, from what has been a very stressful time for everybody. Um, so they're going to cat videos and other things like that. I don't mean to minimize <laughs> their need for a certain yeah. amount of relief. I was listening to a radio program, not yours, uh, <laughs> so for some classical music. And, and the host of the program started reading excerpts from the Truth and, and Reconciliation Report. Mm. And so I said, I know him from a previous life. I sent him a note saying, um, you know, I, I kind of come to you for a bit of release yeah. from the, this intensity. And he said, well, you're wrong. You know, you, you should be paying more attention to it. And I think he has a point. He's right. I should be paying more attention to it. But boy, I need a break. Uh, off every day, you know, the direction of this show. Where do you go? Where do you go? Especially during the, the, the final days of COVID, the final months of COVID. How much of this do we need? How do you, you know, at what point does everybody just start going, you know, I can't handle this anymore? Often I have felt like that at times. It's, it's a well, fine balance. It, it's interesting. I, I had a coffee with a former student uh, who is looking for uh, next steps for, for her. She's, I think, 23 years old. And she had become kind of captive of this idea of victimhood. And I said, if you keep telling stories about how awful the world is, that's not going to give people a sense of hope. And I think what we're looking for, whether it's in the war in Ukraine or everything mm -hmm. else, is how do we get out of this? Where do we go from here? And I think this is the challenge for all of us, whether we are, uh, you know, pontificating or teaching or or being journalists, we have to give the audience a little bit of not false hope, but a little bit of sense about where is this going to go and how can we how can we help each other? Where's that sense of community that we thought we once had and we don't seem to feel anymore? I mean, seeing those pictures of refugees and asylum seekers sleeping on the streets of Toronto is just shocking absolutely shocking so we got to do better thank you for the lesson jeffrey dvorkin with a senior fellow massey college former director of journalism university of toronto scarborough author of trusting the news in a digital age jeff as always thanks so much for the time be well anytime thanks 
The International Gas Union's annual LNG report, Liquid Natural Gas, released last week, says that Canada has the planet's second largest pipeline of LNG products, or sorry, projects, LNG projects, at the final uh, investment decision, uh, the pre-final investment decision phase. However, one quarter of all new liquefaction capacity on the drawing board is in Canada. If all these projects were built, Canada would be exporting three times as much liquid natural gas as last year's largest exporting country, Australia, where liquid natural gas exports were worth $83.4 billion. But the bigger question is, will Canada follow through? Interesting article on the Globe and, in the Globe and Mail on all of this. Let's bring in Atif Kabursi, Professor Emeritus Economics at Master University, President of Ecometric Research Limited, former Undersecretary for the United Nations, and with us now. Atif, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. I... Uh appreciate inviting me. Thank you. Atif, we've had this conversation. You're on one side of the seat, it appears. I'm on the other side. What are your thoughts when you hear of this report? Um, uh, and again, I, I've made the case to you a couple of times about using Canadian liquid natural gas as a transition fuel, getting the rest of the world off coal over the next couple of decades. What are your thoughts on this report? Look, nobody can be against uh, getting Canada to export and gain uh, some uh, very important uh, resources. Uh, We are in a very privileged position. We've been in that privileged position with Alberta's oil and gas. And uh, there is really a difficult situation to be in where you would have to argue that maybe this export is not just unmitigated uh, panacea. There are real problems here because just to Today, as we're talking, we're frying in Europe and other places, and even here in Canada, it's too hot. And the issue here is to what extent uh, this climate change that we are facing today is connected in a very uh, real way from the way we are spoiling spoiling and spouting our uh, emissions far more in excess than this planet can absorb. Um, and balance, that's the key, as you have mentioned. But when you see other parts of the world that are expanding their coal operations because of lack of other resources, um, at the end of the day, I've said this before, how can we how can we shut off everything if we can't shut off coal? Yeah, the question is definitely, and you're absolutely right, Scott, here, is that coal is the dirtiest and one that contributes the most to global warming and to climate change. And then certainly uh, natural gas contributes less, but still contributes. And what is really crucial here is to what extent can we live to our agreement, the protocol of Paris, where we would like to limit the emissions so that they are commensurate, consistent with this planet not raising temperature more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial times and it doesn't seem to be the case you know most countries and including canada are on a trajectory on a path where they would contribute more uh, than would be consistent with this 1.5 degrees and look we're today we're experiencing in europe and other places asia temperatures above 50 and in, in one part of the middle east the temperature was over 150 fahrenheit i mean this is almost a 70 degree centigrade uh, these are unlivable temperatures we gotta have to one way or the other measure up to our responsibility to keep this planet sustainable survivable and with everything you are saying atif 
coal is still growing. They're still burning more. So would that suggest this strategy is not working? Well, uh, you know, uh, let's make it work. I mean, the issue here is we all know that this is no longer a choice. Uh, It's a a very disastrous situation we're in. It's a climate crisis, most people have uh, declared. And the issue here is how do we raise our commitment? How do we come to the plate with credible, effective measures that would make sure that we do not slip into this irreversible position that we are on this course at this moment. Many would suggest that the way to do that is to use liquid natural gas as a a transitional fuel. So that being said, again, we know what the outcomes are going to be when we don't act. But again, we can't seem to get the world off of coal. So should we be doing more? Should we be building pipelines here to get that world off of coal? Considering everything you've said. I mean, I see the logic of the argument you're giving, uh, Scott, and it's not bad argument. But you see, this the worry is that if we continue on this course and we remain wedded to fossil fuel, if we don't wean ourselves of it, uh, it started with coal, it's going to be with gas, with oil. The issue here is to get off the fossil fuel. Let's get into a sustainable uh, energy use. And we have the options. I mean, we can use solar energy. We can use wind. We can use our green hydrogen. Uh, We can do a lot more than just keep expanding our investment and our you know, reliance on these fossil fuels that's no longer sustainable or tenable. Uh, I don't know. I just keep thinking back of the conversation I had with Elizabeth May, and uh, I'm having the same discussion with her. And she said, well, it's too late for all of that. We should have done that 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, she was selling the same message. So, again, I go back to I think we're all trying to get to the same place. But I don't think what's working is the strategy and and where others can help. They're not just to keep their own hands clean and, and looking for cleaner alternatives that clean countries are, a core, of course, going to jump on, but the dirty ones aren't. So at the end of the day, are we really solving the problem or just making ourselves feel better? You know, if, if we're not, if, if the use of coal is growing, I can't see how the strategy is working. Yeah, but I I take completely different view here in the sense that if the strategy that we know is the right one is being applied, the issue is not to abandon it and not to take refuge into the fact that I don't think I don't think it's and it's yeah, it's it's not an it's not a one or the other. I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I don't want to say it's all this, all that. It's a combination of all of this is what my point is, Atif. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no problem. I mean, yeah, well, let's do the, the right thing. And we can't do it in one step. Let's do it. I mean, Elizabeth May saying should have done it 20 years ago. We didn't. This, this is not an argument not to continue to try to do it. There is still a window for us. All the scientists say it's a window, a window that is closing, closing tight. And we lose, you know, this uh, time now. The issue here is let's do the right thing. Let's do it as we as fast and as good as we can. Atif Kabursi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University. Atif, as always, a great discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
Yeah, thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's inflation rate has fallen back to uh, the country's target range for the first time in more than two years, uh, dropping from 3.4% last month to 2.8%. Well, isn't that a relief? I'm going out to buy a house and groceries. Um, no, not so quick. Uh, this man's been on the media quite a bit trying to explain uh, these numbers and why, of course, groceries are still so high. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and back with us again. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. What about you? So far, so good. I know everybody's asking you the question, well, come on, uh, Sylvan, it's like down to 2.8%. Why are we still paying so much at the grocery store? What are you telling everybody? Like, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Help us. Well, I know. Well, so, I mean, first of all, I, I was just looking at the G7 countries. We actually have the lowest uh, food inflation rate amongst uh, that group other than the U.S. The U.S. is at actually 5.7%, we're second. And so uh, we're doing okay in the grand scheme of things, but people listening in probably don't care about what's going on in Germany or France or the U.K. Uh, or Italy. Uh, I imagine that uh, they want to know more. Well, here's the thing. Every month there seems to be one category which stands out, and this month it, it was really about fruits and meat, and in particular beef, those those items have actually pushed uh, our food inflation rate higher, or at least uh, it, it, it basically remained the same compared to May. But if you look at month-to-month changes, we're actually down 0.1%, which means that there's less pressure on food prices right now. We're hearing that uh, fuel has come down over the last month, although it seems to fluctuate as well. Does that, uh, what sort of relief or pressure does that put on this? It helps. Uh, it helps. Uh, the other thing that uh, we're not talking about all that much is the currency. Typically, the currency would actually really uh, cost us if, for example, the Canadian uh, dollar goes down against the greenback. But uh, we've been lucky. We've been very lucky. Uh, it's been a non story. And helping us, uh, although fruits, fruits were more expensive, and I think it has a lot to do with seasonality and the fact that some uh, farmers actually have had to uh, deal with uh, uh, other nature that that wasn't really uh, helping out. So those are things that really are impacting everyone. Uh, as you mentioned, it's obviously summer here, so fruits and vegetables locally are uh, are, are in season or will be shortly. Uh, will we see some relief there? Uh, probably, I would say. Uh, I mean, essentially, you need to you need good weather and you need uh, ample supplies. The one the one advice I could give to your listeners is that if something uh, is in season and, and you're just at the beginning of that particular season. Uh, you may want to wait a while because uh, grocers will charge you, will charge premium for those who actually want strawberries right at the beginning of of the season. But if you wait a, a week or two, you'll actually get some good deals. Like right now, like blueberries, I know blueberries in Ontario are are are, are a good deal right now. So I certainly would actually wait for those kinds of things. Uh, so we have seen a slight dip in inflation, uh, and again, it depends on various sectors and such. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to see that continue in the general economy. Where do you see groceries going? Do you see them staying where they are right now for the immediate future? 
Uh, prices won't drop. Uh, I, I know I'm, I'm getting a lot uh, of that today, and people are saying, well, when will prices go back to where they were? They won't. Uh, uh, the, the reality is that costs are, have gone up across the board. There's a new baseline when it comes to manufacturing food, when it comes to distribution, distribution of food. And uh, but we are expecting the food inflation rate to drop to uh, to five to seven percent by the end of this year. So less pressure on food prices, more deals, more rebates, more loss leaders for consumers. We remember uh, talking a few weeks ago in regards to competition and the big providers and such. Any more to share on that? Uh, any advice? Whether do you shop small? Do you shop big? Or is it a combination of all of it to find the best deal? I mean, for, in your area, you have you have options. I mean, uh, you do have options. If you're very careful, if you do a homework before you leave your home and you go to one store at a time every week and you alternate between, say, three stores, the discount grocer, a regular big box, and a specialty store, uh, in, the, in the Hamilton area, I suspect that you can actually find some really good deals. If you're careful, you'll, and you'll be more knowledgeable about, about prices and, and and keep in mind that prices do change every single day. So, and don't show up on Fridays and Saturdays. Try to actually mm. show up early in the week if you can. Uh, that will help you as well. All right, great advice. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Jugmeet Singh is in the city today to lay out the NDP strategy for handling rent prices and those who are concerned about losing their homes, rent eviction, skyrocketing rents. Uh, Jugmeet Singh is with us now, leader of the federal NDP and here now. Jugmeet Singh, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on the show. So explain your, uh, your your thoughts here on on rental housing, what we can do to keep people in that housing. What's your plan? So first off, we've got to acknowledge that we're in a real crisis. We are seeing across the country rent skyrocketing and people really afraid if they can actually stay in their homes. Many people have been renovated. And renovating is when a developer or a wealthy investor purchases a building and then effectively kicks the residents out with the excuse of renovations, renovates units, and then puts them back on the market for double or triple what they were before. And we lose the affordability. In Hamilton, in the past decade, 16,000 affordable units have been lost. It's basically come to the point that every 25 unit that's lost, that's affordable, so an apartment or a place that people could rent that's affordable, for every 25 that are lost, only one new is built that's affordable. So that's, that's a losing battle. So what we're committing to, what we're saying is, the first thing we need to do is we've got to keep what we have that is affordable. We've got to keep it affordable. To do that, we're, we're proposing an acquisition fund. That would help out families like those that are on Caroline Street, Caroline Street in Hamilton, where their building is right now at risk of being purchased by a developer who wants to renovate all the tenants. They're putting together a plan, a proposal, to turn their apartments into a cooperative where each tenant owns the building. They're trying to do it on their own. They shouldn't have to struggle that way. And what's happened over the years is the prime minister has allowed more and more developers to snap up 
affordable market uh, rental units and turn them into luxury or expensive rental units, that's got to stop. The Conservatives don't have a plan for this. This is our plan. Let's have a fund in place that allows those communities to keep those rental units affordable, turn them into cooperatives, make them uh, purchase them by the either the city or purchase them by a local community not-for-profit organization that keeps them affordable as opposed to a developer that comes in and then turns them around and makes them really expensive. Well, I'm guessing a developer already owns it or somebody already owns it. How do you take a privately owned building and turn it into a co-op? Well, the, if there's an acquisition fund, what's happening is for a lot of a lot of folks that own those buildings are saying, oh, it's, it's hard to keep up the uptake. Uh, we want to get out. We want to sell it. And we want to just get a return on our investment. Uh, and some developers are saying, okay, we'll buy that building. And what we'll do is to make more profit because the current rent is so low. One way to change that is to renovate the units and then basically force the residents to leave and then increase the rent and make more money out of it. Uh, the, the existing owners have to keep the rent at what it is uh, unless they sell it. And then the new owner can then increase the rent. When we're allowing it to be sold to developer, we're proposing it. Basically, something that the B.C. government's already put in place, it's a fund that's set up for the express purpose of allowing community groups to, to instead of allow, uh, having those units be purchased by uh, developer who wants to make more money off of it, allow it to be purchased by a community group. Uh, one example is a cooperative, like the cooperative that we went to today, the Corktown Cooperative. What the, what they do is uh, you set up a structure where each resident who is renting becomes a part owner of the building. And in doing so, the focus is to keep the rent affordable. It actually, by law, has to be maintained affordable. The Corktown Cooperative, the rents are somewhere in the range of 500 to 700 whereas uh, market rent in Hamilton is well over $2,000. So that's really deeply affordable. And to keep it affordable, we've got to go to a not-for-profit structure, a non-market structure, or a cooperative structure, something that's not market-based, because market-based rents are just not affordable for people. Uh, this seems like a problem that will just continue and go around in circles and circles and circles. I mean, I'm old enough to remember in the 1970s when there was lots of apartment buildings around, and then rent control came in, and all of a sudden it wasn't attractive to build apartments anymore, and we started going to condos, and the rest is history, as they say. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Singh, we have a housing shortage because over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we just simply haven't built enough of anything whether it's targeted to the lower income, whether it's it's in the middle class. And we know that, you know, if there's a crisis, it obviously affects the lower and more than anybody. So that's obviously what we're seeing here. Why have we not just simply built more homes in every category right across the board? Because you use the term affordable housing, but I would suggest that there's many people along different demographics and different uh, uh, wage structures that all would say we need affordable housing. It's all all way too expensive. So why have we not built more? Are we now going to build? I think there's a massive uh, short, short, uh, short shortage of, of, of availability. That's absolutely a problem. We need to build a lot more. There is there is a big. How did we How did we get here, people. though, Mister Singh? How did we How How did we get here? How do governments reasons. stop yeah. building things? I would say a couple of reasons. First off, uh, we look back. There was a time when the federal government actually used to build homes. And you look back around the 90s is when that stopped. And if you look at the 90s when we stopped federally building homes that were affordable, I'm talking about homes for people to purchase or apartments or cooperatives. 
things that were affordable. Uh, that stopped around the 90s with, uh, at that time, the Liberals were in power. That continued with uh, the Conservatives when they came in, continued again with the Liberals. Uh, so it's the exact same cut of federal public funding into homes that made a big short, uh, a big a gap between what people need and what's out there. So that was one big problem. The other big problem is we've actually done a comparison between Canada and other countries in the world where they have affordable rent and affordable purchasing of homes. We compare it to about eight countries in, in Europe. And when we look at their housing market, they've got 20% of their market where rental, there's re- just purpose-built rental. In Canada, purposeful rental is only 4% of the market. So what happens is when there's nowhere for you to go and rent affordably, then there's all sorts of pressures to go out and buy. For a lot of young people coming out of university or college or in the trades, they're not sure where their career is going to take them. It would be beneficial to be able to rent affordably for a bit, to save up money, to figure out where your career is going to take you, what city it's going to take you, where you want to settle down. And in the meantime, to be able to have a place that's affordable, you can save up money, and then you can purchase down the road. But there is simply not that option in Canada. There is no purpose-built rental the way there is in other countries that's affordable. So we need to build more affordable rentals so people can actually rent and save up money. We need to build more private, just regular homes that people can buy. And we also need non-market housing. And the reason why we need non-market is if we only build market housing, there'll be some people that can afford that. There's a lot of people, like you mentioned, people who have decent wages, people who have decent jobs, who are saying, we can't even afford a place. So the non-market option is one that's not going to be driven up by the, by the market pressures. We need to incentivize and encourage the building of non-market some examples, there's uh, been some test studies of how this would happen. Funny enough, in Whistler, uh, in the community of Whistler, they've got homes that are built for the residents and, and people that work there so they can actually afford. And one of the rules that they put in place is, you, and this is something that's been tried around the world, you can purchase a home or an apartment for a set fee, let's say 100000 200000 400000 you live in it five, six years, you can't sell it for more than you purchased it. You keep the prices at an affordable level. That creates another alternative. We need a mix of solutions. We need more private homes. We need more, more rental. And we need more non-market. So cooperatives or not-for-profit housing or this example that I gave you where there's a, a cap on the amount that it can be sold for. These are some of the solutions we need, and we need all of them, and we need it rapidly. Jagmeet Singh with us, leader of the federal NDP in Hamilton today, talking housing and specifically rent and rental prices. Jagmeet Singh, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, in the world we're living in, we've talked about uh, the military in Canada. Obviously, a long history of prime ministers ignoring national defense. A uh, different world now in a post-COVID-19 uh, world. Uh, two Michaels, what have you, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, interesting article in the National Post uh, by Carson Jarama, comment editor with the National Post. Uh, Trudeau, only the latest PM who couldn't care less about national defense. Carson with us now. Carson, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, Carson, safe, uh, safe uh, uh, thing to say, uh, safe uh, projection. I the word. I've lost the word I'm looking for here. Uh, when you think about when even the last government was in power, uh, China was viewed as uh, an emerging market, an opportunity, the golden goose. And then, obviously, in a post-pandemic world, uh, post to Michael's uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, we got a different planet than we had even five, ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would make the argument that I think that the world has um, there was a there was a 
there's an assumption that um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, there's this idea that the world changed. But I'm not sure that it changed as much as it did. Um, Like Vladimir Putin had, um, like he invaded um, Georgia, had wars in Chechnya. um, You know, he invaded Crimea in 2014. Uh, China has, China has, um, you know, certainly taken a turn after Xi Jinping took over the leadership there. Um, but what we're seeing is perhaps there was a, an assumption amongst Western countries that things were different, but they really weren't as, no one was really paying attention to everything that was there in plain sight. And now we have these challenges where, you know, you have the invasion, the Russia invasion of, you know, of Ukraine, not just on, not just on Crimea, but a full invasion. And you have uh, China that is looking ever more menacing and, and combative. And, uh, you know, a lot of countries and governments were caught a little on their heels, not expecting it. But now we're starting to see some, some pushback. Are opinions of Canadians changing? We remember the uh, the report that was leaked from the Pentagon that had the Prime Minister saying Canada will never need its, uh, meet its NATO targets, is no interest in doing so, and Canadians reacted negatively towards that. Uh, is Canadian, and many have said this is a, a non-starter, a no-voter for any politician, whatever your political stripe is, is the attitude of Canadians changing here because of the recent conflicts? E- it's 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 possible that we that that is changing. I, I mean, I'd have to see more detailed polling on that. But yeah, there does seem to be a sense that it, it used to be that defense was you know there was only so much political appetite for defense spending. Um, this is a reason why you know the Harper government had uh, struggled to get the uh, to get the F thirty five fighter jet deals uh finalized when they're in power they just it was politically unpopular and so they just kept putting it off putting it off putting it off because nobody wants to spend money on defense and maybe we've allowed it maybe things have been allowed to atrophy so much that maybe uh public opinion is swinging the uh is swinging the other way uh, we, we, we hear a lot about the, the NATO um, the NATO targets and such, that uh, Canada is supposed to hit 2%. It's sitting at about 1.3%, 1.4% of that now. Are we spending too much time? And then people argue about our gross domestic product, la, 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 how much money we make compared to others. Is there too much time spent on the NATO spending or the NATO target, and then the, the discussion goes elsewhere, as opposed to, at the end of the day, our military is in shambles. It's in very, very poor conditions, reasons you've spoke of in your article. Uh, are, are we spending too much time trying to justify a NATO target rather than just looking at our military and, and saying, look at this, it needs help, forget NATO, just fix this? Yeah, I, mean, I think that, like the, the target is like an easy sort of objective number we can point to saying, hey, we're not meeting this number. Our allies say we're not meeting this number. It's a little more complicated to say, um, and so I, I think I think it's arbitrary. I'm not necessarily sure that like it's necessary to hit, that, meet that number, yeah. but but it's that's at least it's an objective hard thing to point to. It's more complicated. We look at it, like well, we can't even meet our obligations, right? We can't even do the things. We can't even like function. The, the Canadian Armed Forces can barely function. Like so, like in the fall, um, the chief of the defense staff ordered uh, a stop to all non-essential activities because they didn't have enough troops. Right. We need to focus on recruitment. We need to keep people from leaving and like, you can't even do basic things. And so, yeah, I mean, like that needs to be the focus, I think, before we think about how much of overall spending needs to be done. What needs to be done to have a functional military now if we want to do, you know, if we're de- doing a deployment, if we have um, 
if we want to do missions uh naval missions with with the australians and the americans if we want to you know if we have any sort of contributions um air force contributions army contributions like what can we actually do to to complete the missions we should be able to compete complete and what do we need to actually assert ourselves um in the north and you know as well as specifically in the north I think that needs to be the question, but that's a much more complicated question than simply whether we're meeting a certain uh, dollar number. Are there too much, uh, is there too much time spent on missions, doing this, doing that, trying to make it look like we're contributing as opposed to, you know what, we should stop everything right now or, or put a pause on where we are and just work on rebuilding what we have. Would that not resonate with the public or would the public say we don't need to do this even though you brought up issues in the arctic that weren't there even five ten years ago um i mean i don't know that we'd want it we, we need to scale back our current our current commitments but i think we the the uh, you know say in, in latvia or training or train like our you know we have a uh, contingent in latvia or our training in in poland of um we wouldn't necessarily want to pull back on the commitments that we have but we need to stop treating national defense as if it's something that can be um discarded as something that is not our responsibility it is very much our responsibility we have responsibilities to canadians to keep the, the country safe and we have responsibility to our allies who we work with now there are there are there's a theory there are some academics out there there are some theories there's some ideas out there that canada should should pull back from europe for example and focus just on helping NATO by helping to protect North America. We have a limited force, so if we just focus all our resources in North America, that would free up some American resources to go more to Europe or, or whatever, however we want to do that. That is that is certainly one option that, that I've seen floated around. I, I'm not necessarily would endorse that, I endorse that particular position. My point is just that I think we just need to recognize that you can't just neglect something. It's gonna, with, you know, without, you know, it's gonna rot. Do we think that our national uh, defense is really about defending us or no, we don't need that. We're just here to help others. This is just an extra. We don't need defending. That is certainly the perception that Canadians uh, had and uh, Canadian governments who have uh, who want to spend money on things not, not national defense have been happy to contribute to that view of things. I mean, there is certainly there's like there is like a like a cold, cold war mentality there even but we were spending more money in the cold you know in the 60s or whatever but the cold war mentality there where the americans were very concerned about protecting all of north america um and so we could have this comfort well, we don't really need to worry about defense the americans are going to do it hmm. um i think it's important you know we don't the canadian canada doesn't need a military that is strong enough and big enough to repel necessarily a, a chinese a Chinese force, for example, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but like a, a right. force with, like, say, Russia coming from the north, it doesn't just need to be able to repel that. What it needs to do is enough to make what's called like a hard target, for example, like a strong enough military. Yeah, you could overwhelm it, but it's going to hurt, so it acts as a deterrence. Um, countries like Sweden and other smaller European countries have, you know, forces that um, are not on the level of of what like a Russia or Britain or the U.S. or you know, but they are significant enough to help, you know, ensure that uh, if you come here, it's not mm. going to be easy. Carson Jarama with us, comment editor, National Post, the latest. Uh, Trudeau, only the latest PM who couldn't care less about national defense. Carson, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.